do you want to live your life based upon you know your ideals and your principles or do you want to do it to satisfy someone else's and so i, I think that's the biggest uh takeaway for, uh, for me so go ahead and do it hey guys welcome to another episode of getting back up with me anthony agogo i must apologize i'm on my travels at the moment i wrestled in southampton uk today i got a big match in london next week before heading back to the u.s and carrying on my wrestling journey with AEW. With that being said, I've found time to smash out another banging episode of the Getting Back Up podcast. Today, we welcome Larry V. Santana on the podcast. Larry is a, a film writer and director, a wonderful man. Like, he's chosen a career in Hollywood and Hollywood is probably the most competitive industry in the world. Tens upon tens of thousands of people every single year go to LA to try to make it in Tinseltown and Larry did the exact same. You're going to really enjoy this podcast. Uh, Larry talks about his upbringing. He talks about his love of film and becoming a storyteller. He talks about Five O'Clock Shadows, the movie that he tried to make. They actually cast me to play Tommy Knuckles. But unfortunately, it didn't get the funding from Universal Studios, which he hoped to get is a massive setback he worked for years on this production and fell at the final hurdle and we talk about the setbacks and the rejection and overcoming said setback and rejection to muster the, the strength of character and desire to go at it again for the next one you're gonna love this podcast so without further ado let's get stuck in Larry V. Santana, filmmaker, absolute legend, mate. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. My pleasure, mate. Thank you for having me. I'm going to ask lots of questions today. Right? I'm going to ask lots of questions. We're going to go. I have no idea where we're going to go. I've done a lot of research on you. I know we can, and I know you personally as well. Um, filmmaker extraordinaire, all the other stuff we're going to talk about. But the most important question I'm going to ask you is the first one. And I hope you answer very honestly. Um, had a bit of bad bad news a couple of weeks ago. How are you, mate? I'm doing all right. You know, I'm hanging in. I think you know the the bad news you're referring to is uh, we worked on this uh, film project together. I was uh, paid to write a film, a feature film for uh, Universal, and trying to pitch myself as a director on the project, not just writing it and getting it made that way, but trying to you know with my full vision of of the story from top to bottom. Um, and you know, I had a some some conversations with the studio and uh we were i thought you know close to getting getting there and then uh ultimately it didn't work out so trying to uh you know pivot transition to uh finding a way to get it made um independently and you know the, the, this that's been a, a challenge but i i'm up for it and I, I believe in the project and i believe in the cast including yourself and so we'll find a way we'll find a way we will find a way and that's a very that's a very good answer that you say so that sounds like a i'm not saying this is but that sounds like very well, Hurst answer, but truly, deeply, honestly, I mean, you've worked, and I know I was on. I was one of the the actors that you cast for the for the yeah. film, and it was yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. And the, yeah. I mean, the story was so great. Like I wanted to do it so bad, and I was just, I was a, I was a toy in the, I was a Barbie in the Barbie house. You built the house, so honestly, mate, when you when you get that knockback, this podcast is all about like, getting off from setbacks. Like fuck, like. Oh, What's it like? Because you put your heart and soul into it. You live and breathe yeah. and dream it. You dream character. You write the character. You can see it so clearly in your head. And somebody yeah. else goes, nope. Not because of you're not good enough or because you whatever. 
It's a no from somebody else. You can't see your vision. How how do you deal with that setback? Well, I mean, you know, I'll be very honest. It's, it's heartbreaking every time. I mean, like the the business is, is very much. I mean, rejection is kind of just part of the deal. And so, in order to uh, anyone that I talk to that is interested in getting into the industry, you know, I always tell them like, you have to love this above all other things because if there's anything else that you would even be remotely inter interested in doing, go do that because it's going to be so much easier for you. Like, you have to love it because like. You got to power through so much no and so much people thinking that you're crazy and thinking that, you know, because the thing is, I discovered, you know, and after years in the business, it's like everyone says, we want the new fresh th thing, right? And then you give it to them and they don't know what to do with it because they want to like fall back on what's already worked. They want to say, hey, well, what's familiar? Because no one, the industry is very risk averse now, I think more than ever, um, you know, for a million reasons we can get into. But I mean, I think for me personally, like, putting my everything into this project and like, just like, you know, hard and so many late nights. I mean, like long hours, just, you know, very little sleep for a long, long time. Um, but I'm doing it because I'm so passionate. I, I love it so much. And so when you do that, you know, like there's a, a real vulnerability there. It's like, all right, I'm saying this is me, like creatively naked, like here, here, here it is. And then when they give it back to you and they say, no, it's things every time. It never feels good. It's never, you know, People are like, oh, well, you become numb to it. I don't, you know, it's it's, it's not good. But, you know, ultimately you have to say, well, they didn't get it. But, like, I, I still, as long as I see the vision and I, I believe in it, like, the, all you can do is, is, is move forward. And so that's, that's what I'm doing because there's, there's no other way. Yeah. And that is obviously, you know, the vision. You're talking about specifically a, a movie that you want to uh, film and, and direct and create. But that's, that's indicative of life, isn't it? As long as you see what you want to get, or you see where you want to get to, if you believe in it enough and you're passionate enough, go after it. No matter how many times you stumble along the way, how many knows you get. If you want it so bad, just go and get it. And it brings me on to this next thing. Okay, so I'm going to ask a couple of questions here, and it's going to be a little question pie. What the hell? I don't know what I'm talking about. Goodness me. <laughs> Only five minutes in, I'm talking about nonsense already. Um, so, Craig, what I love about you, Larry, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, and I really do mean this. I'm not one of these people that say, oh, I mean it in a nice way, I don't. I mean this in the nicest possible way. You're a dreamer, and that's what I love about you. You're a dreamer, and I, and I love that because if you think about it, we were all dreamers once. I mean, I still am a dreamer very much, but we were all kids once. We dreamt. We had to dream. We didn't know anything. We dreamt stuff. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to go here. I want to go there. And because you, you're a kid, like no one says you can't do it, and you want it, and you believe in it, then you get older, you get your dreams stamped out, stamped out, and you get ironed out, and you become normal and boring. And then we don't go after our dreams anymore. But what I love about you is you have a dream, you go after it. And yeah, there's been times in your life we're going to talk about where you kind of stagnated maybe. You know, life began to like iron the dreams out of you. But eventually you went, no, I'm going after this. And I love that about you, mate. And that's that's something I really respect. And I think there's a dreamer in all of us in here, in us. And it's whether we have the the bottle, uh, the the desire to dig down deep enough and let our inner boy and girl dreamers out into the world. And man, that's that's I wanted to say that about you. I I, I respect that about you, and I want to talk about 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 your dreams and your visions. Um, two questions, mate. Larry V. Santana. So it's fascinating. Someone's got like a, an, an initial with just just the first letter of the V. So what is V? And also, for those that don't know who you are, we've kind of explained it already. But actually, who are you and why are we talking today? Okay, uh, so I'll start with the first. Well, first, thank you for saying what you said about me being a dreamer. I just want to say on that point, I think that 
Um, dreamers are the ones that I think, you know, change, change the world, change culture. They, they move the needle forward. And so without the dreamers, we would stagnate as a species. I think it's the people that, that, you know, they, they call you crazy at first, but then once you prove it and say, Hey, I did this thing, then all of a sudden, Oh, like you're, he's a genius. So we always knew he was going to be great, but like, that is so important. I think that adulthood, especially, cause like, you know, when you're kind of taught, I think, uh, conformity, it's like, as you get older, it's like, they kind of beat that out of you. So, oh no, but like do the safe thing, do what's already, do what's expected of you by other people. And I think you can get kind of lost. You can lose yourself in that trap of trying to fulfill other people's expectations of what your life should be. And I think that- You're not living I, for I them. Think, you're not living for them. No. You're paying taxes. All, no. You're doing this. You're, right. like, you're not living for them. You've got to live for yourself. Yeah, yeah. And so and on, on that on that dream, before you go on, that's the great point you made, the dreamy thing. Imagine this, 400, 400 years ago, 200 years ago, 300, not that long ago, right? A couple great grandparents, great, great, great grandparents, but not that long ago, somebody else had no idea there's going to be a plane one day. What's a plane? Oh, it's going to be a big, massive John Kong metal. It's going to fly like thousands of feet up in the air. What an idiot. What an idiotic thing to think of. But somebody dreamt that and did it. Like, without dreamers, mate, we're still cavemen and women, like, not even talking to each other with clubs getting eaten by saber-toothed tigers. Dreamers make the world go on. Make the world spin, and we all got we've all we all got dreamers inside us, and our dreams haven't got to change the world, but our dreams can change our worlds. And again, getting back to that dream, and yeah, mate, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I think I think you're dead right on that one. So uh, to answer your question about uh, my name, so the V, so the V stands for Victor. So I have a an interesting story about like my name generally. So so I, I'm I, I'm very light skinned, but like I'm, I'm I'm Puerto Rican. My family's from Puerto Rico originally, and so um, as a kid, like. Um, I always had, you know, the name Larry Santana. Santana is a very like Latin name, right? Larry is not so much. So I remember being a kid, like growing up in New York, like nothing but like Hispanic. It's all mostly like black and Hispanic kids. And so having the name, you know, like Larry Santana was like it didn't kind of fit. And I always wondered, well, what, what's up? What's up with that? Why? Why do I? What's? Where's this Larry come from? Because I, I've never met a Puerto Rican named Larry ever, right? Besides my dad, my dad's Larry Senior, right? So. I asked my dad about it. I'm like, dad, like, how are we both Larry's as, as a kid? And so going back to when my dad was born, so um, my grandmother was in the hospital, like about to give birth to my dad, right? And she was going to name him Victor after my grandfather. And, you know, in Spanish, like, like Victor, Victor Santana. It's a very, like, Latin name, right? And so for some reason, and I'll never know the answer, you know, my, my grandmother passed on, so, you know, rest in peace, but... I'll never know the answer, but for whatever reason, my grandfather was not at the hospital at my dad's birth. And my grandmother was furious. I mean, she was pissed, right? So she goes, I'm not going to name him Victor. And so well, the nurse who was delivering my dad says, well, what do you want to name him? She goes, how about you name the kid? And the nurse was engaged. Her fiance was a guy named Larry. She's going to marry this guy named Larry. She's like, I love Larry. Like, Larry's a beautiful name. She goes, okay, that's it. He's Larry Santana. And so then my then when I was born, I'm Larry the second, and the V is, is the victor from my, my grandfather. So he's Larry and I'm Larry V. Yeah, and named your her son Larry out of spite. <laughs> out of spite. <laughs> I love that. Exactly. Man. Wow, man, I love that. I love that. Growing up in New York. I know, I know, I know, but well, I'm gonna start with this, right? I've done some research on you, mate, and I found an amazing art school. I'm going to share at the end. Uh, people will learn more about you. Although we'll cover most points in this. The reason we're talking with a dreamer, the first paragraph is article. I thought oh, this can be a good podcast. You said, 
Risk is what makes the juice worth the squeeze. Without it, you can never achieve anything truly extraordinary. Talk about that, mate. Yeah. Talk about that. I think the risk is what may, I mean, you know, if it's, if it's easy, then anyone would do it, right? If, it, if it's too, if the bar is so low, there's nothing special about it. Nothing, you know, that, that really, like for me, I'm always trying to evolve, not just as a, as an artist, as a, as a creative person, but as, as a human being too. So it's like, I just, I've always like sought out challenges. I think like and throughout my life, and this has been true since as, as, as far back as I can remember, but whenever I was in a situation, say a job or any, any sort of situation that I was like, I'm bored here. Why am I so bored? Why am I unhappy? It was because there was like a ceiling on like, I, I don't know, like I, I wanted to reach for more and there wasn't any more there to reach for. And so I was like, well, what else is there? I, I don't want to become stagnant. And so I think that um, the reason why people celebrate, you know, great athletes or, or filmmakers or, you know, musicians or whatever is because we all have the same human limitations. And these people say, I'm going to reach beyond those limitations and create something that is truly remarkable. And everyone cheers them on and loves it because we all deep down, I think, want to want to strive for more. And some of us are too afraid to do it. But so when we see people that are willing to take that chance and take that risk, it's so inspirational. It's, it becomes like, oh, my God, like as a someone you look to as like inspiration for whatever hard time you might be going through in your life. You went on to say every day, no matter how frightening or stressful, I choose risk. I choose to bet on myself because it's the safest bet I'll ever make. And I love that. And it made me think, I saw a video actually, when the day I saw it, I saw a video, uh, Eric Thomas, inspirational speaker, was talking about Kobe Bryant. Now, he didn't used to like Kobe Bryant. He never used to like him for his ball hog, never used to pass, be a dick, didn't like him. Then he heard then he heard Kobe talk. Rest in peace, Kobe Bryant, one of the greatest ever. He heard Kobe talk, and Kobe did a speech where he was like, he was the first person in the gym. Right, every single day. He was first person in, last person to leave. He'd shoot, he'd practice, he'd shoot, shoot, shoot until his, until his fingernails were, were, were red raw. And then come to the end of the game, when there's the game winning shot on the line, he'd look around for his teammates who to pass to. He's like, he doesn't train that hard. He leaves early. He turns up late. He goes, he pies. He went, nah, fuck, I'm taking this last winning shot. I, I bet on myself. If anyone's going to take this shot, I bet. And I, and I thought, wow, I love that. Because I just... You, you, we, me, each everyone listening to this, we're all we've got, really. We're all we've really got. Like, if you can't back on yourself, who can you, who can you bet on? Or who can you back? And I just thought, I, I, when I heard, when I read that, I thought Kobe Bryant. I just think that's amazing. No, I, I, and I think you know, um, I have, you know, you, you have all the context about who you are. I mean, it's like I, I think that um, I, I can, you know, there's this, there's a few people in my life that I, that I trust, you know, deeply. But like for everyone out there, it's like. Who can you trust more than you trust yourself? I, th I think that, you know, like you have to sort of like look at, you have to believe it within yourself first. And I think you have to sort of um, trust yourself first and foremost, and then like go forward and kind of build your kind of coalition of champions. Like, you know, like your circle of people that you really trust and love to help, you know, elevate who you are and, and what you can become. But I think that it all starts with that core belief of like, I, I can do this. I believe in me. And, um, do all the things that is is necessary to become the best version of yourself that you can. And even you got, I mean, you got to trust. Even to the point where, like you mentioned, you mentioned that coalition, like bring people around you. You've got to trust yourself to bring the right people around you, right? Yeah. And we, yeah. We have we have partners, spouse, parents, but you. I'm going to say, not saying you can't trust them. Of course you can. You should trust them, but ultimately, they may not always be around. 
Now, you know, I know what's happening in life. You've got to back yourself. I just, I, I love that, man. I love when you said that. So I think everyone listening to this last 15 minutes have heard you kind of got, get your vibe. So let's talk about you and your, and your life and why you have this, why you would back on your, why would you back yourself rather than, than somebody else? Growing up in New York, in the Bronx, um, I know you mentioned to me before about your, I don't know how much you want to kind of go into this, but your family, you were around, you know, family, drunks, drug addicts, um, drug, criminal, act criminal activity is probably the best way to, to describe it. And you never went down that road. What was it like being around that, seeing that on a daily basis? And why did you not go down that road? I think, I mean, my parents, I mean, I think, I think you know, 100%, I think that, well, for, just for context, so like the Bronx, like, you know, I, I, I was born in the 80s. So I was living in the Bronx in the 80s and early 90s, um, up until I was about 10 years old. And I think that the neighborhood that we were in was not the worst in the Bronx, but it was like slowly, like if you walked a, f a couple of blocks, you know, west or, or down that road, like, you know, th there was some some pretty um, scary stuff going on, you know, and there's, uh, without getting too specific, you know, like addiction, you know, uh, incarceration, uh, violence, you know, it affected people in my family, like personally. And so my parents, when me and my brother were growing up, they were very, very adamant about, you know, like, hey, we want to shield you guys from that. Occasionally, there'll be some spillover. I mean, like, you know, I remember one story, walking home from school one day, I must have been like seven or eight, and my apartment building, I was walking to my to my my apartment, and the neighbor's door, somebody like broke in and like caved in the door, so there's all this police tape around it, and the, and the locks on the door, we had like five, six, seven locks on every, on the doors. I mean, it was like, you know, like that kind of, that kind of situation, um, and just seeing that and like being like, okay, that's weird, but like, you're taught to just like put your head down, mind your business kind of keep moving forward and I think like that was kind of like um for my parents they're like we we want to avoid um you know like having the kind of life and those experiences that we had with growing up we want to like protect you as much as we can from it and so I think that as the neighborhood started getting a little bit worse over time they were like we got to get out before like it completely consumes everything and then there's no safe place to turn um and so I think I think I don't know. From from that point, it was kind of like, and being being the older brother too, I kind of felt like um, I, I was it was instilled in me very early on. Like, you have to be sort of a protector, and you got to always keep your wits about you, always keep your head in the swivel, and you know just be ready to, um, to 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 act at a moment's notice, and to be brave, to be strong, um, and I think you know, and as far as. I'm trying to remember your question. It was about about. Um, but how did you how did you not go down that road? It had been walked for you. Family members, I don't, oh. I don't know who, had done yeah, bad yeah. stuff. Like how did you? That's an easy route to go down when when you see it every single day. How did you whip yourself from that and go for you know a, a different life? Um, and who inspired you and why? But you mentioned your parents with with the driving force really. And you you I saw you read an article. You said you felt pressured to not walk down that road where was the pressure from whom i don't know that it was explicitly said but it was always i kind of got the sense of like okay you're supposed to be i remember growing up as a kid and like always loving books and reading and i was known as like the smart the smart kid right and so they were like you're the smart one larry do smart things like your friends are you know being knuckleheads in the street they're out you know running smoking you know drinking you know underage they're getting into fist fights in, in the street like 
you, I don't want you to be that because you're, you're, you're smarter than that. So it was always this pressure of like, you are supposed to be more than that. And if you're not, you, I, you will disappoint me. And I never wanted to disappoint my, my parents because they had seen it from some of their you know friends and family. And just, you know, even, I mean, I remember visiting like, you know, an uncle in, in prison when I was like six. And it was like, there was like a family room. And I was like, where are we going? And like, oh, we're going to go see your uncle. Um, he's, in, he's in summer camp. And I was like, okay, I had no clue. But then, you know, after the fact, I learned later, like, that, that wasn't, that was not sober camp. That, that was, that was prison, man. These are not normal things that I think most kids go through. But, like, I saw that and, like, just getting sort of, like, that feeling of, like, hey, like, you have to be better than this or else. Like, life or death kind of thing. And then we, we moved out of, uh, of the Bronx when I was about 10 and moved to Pennsylvania. Um, but, like, those first 10 years, it was so drilled into my head, like, you have to be more you have to be better that I, I've taken that with me you know ever since then and even like you know post New York and meeting people throughout my life that have been in you know maybe not the best situations like I was able to spot it from a mile away and say okay I need to stay away from that because I know what could happen I know how bad things can get um if you're not careful or if you surround yourselves with yourself with the wrong people um you can you know find yourself in a really bad spot and I was like I, I don't want to do that. And so I think I give all the credit to, to my parents for instilling that in me and just for teaching me, like, there's a right way to do things, there's a wrong way, and you're too smart to do the wrong way, so don't do that. What is it about storytelling? Like, what, what is it about storytelling that, that grabs you, that grabbed you and that makes you want to kind of, like, you know, display your gift to the world? Like, what, like what, what is it? I think it's this sort of, like, elemental thing that goes back to, like, you know, prehistoric times when we're sitting around a campfire telling stories i think stories are how we relate to one another stories are how we teach one another and i think the stories can be uh life affirming you, know, you hear a great story and it like i don't know it makes you feel something it's, it's a sort of like chemical reaction in your body that you can't it's involuntary like you hear a good story and you're the the, the hairs in the back of your neck stand up um you feel i mean to put it very simply you feel alive you feel and there's there's a real sense of um, I think communion between people and sharing stories because like you feel this this uh, connection that you wouldn't have otherwise. And so I think stories are like just this innately human thing that we've had since the very beginning. And I think that's what sort of like we all seek out um, whether we realize it or not. Pet cemetery uh, scared the living daylights out of you. Uh, it sounded yeah. like it did. Um, yeah. Yet you specialize. Like you tell stories, and you've told stories your life. We'll talk about some of the stories you've told, and some of your because there's 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 a period in your life we really want to kind of dive into. It's not really it's not really um, movie or storytelling related. It's about you mm -hmm. and your life. I want to dive into that. So I'm really really proud of you for kind of getting through these moments. Um, but aside from that, um, Pest Cemetery scared you, but you kind of specialize in the horror genre. Mm -hmm. Why? I think the horror genre to me is so interesting because, like, I think it operates. It's like every single cinematic tool, like in the kit, you have to use for a good horror movie. Because a horror movie has to be great drama, it has to have great characters. You got to really invest in the people on screen because then, if you don't care about the people on screen, then the scares they don't land the same way. How do you invest? How how, how do you invest in the K? How do you make? So I'm I'm really fascinated. And I think people listening to this will be as well. How do you make an audience member invest in a character, good or bad? Is it is it a writing? 
Is it the is it the actor and what they do? Well, well, what is it? Well, I think it starts with with the writing first. I mean, you have to like get it on the page and like really sort of like I think present a relatable character that is interesting. Like I I don't I think the best writing is writing that is is non judgmental. What I mean by that is like you have a character, good, bad, or different. Like we're all sort of like shades of gray. I think like there's no like you know white knight or or or, or like you know. There is no black and white in life, I don't think. It's all gray, like, pretty much all the time. Like, so you I can be that... the nicest person in the world, but still be a dick sometimes, right? You yeah. Can be, you can be a murderer, but help an old lady across the road. They, yeah. Everyone's a little bit gray, 100%. Right, right. So I think if you present characters authentically in that way, like, for me, it's like, you know, the the, the typical sort of, like, cliche Hollywood note is like, oh, is the character likable? And, like, to me, I find zero interest in that. To me, it's like, is the character interesting? Does he or she have a compelling point of view? Are they, you know, saying things or doing things that, like, you know, are not the norm and why? Kind of like investing in the psychology of that. I think I get that love, too. Like, you know, I spent 10 years um, as a journalist before I got into filmmaking. And so that was all about getting into the psychology of why people do what they do. And I find people so fascinating. And so because, like, sometimes, you know, there's no... There's there's no way to sort of quantify why a person does what he does. Sometimes it just eludes, you know, um, explanation really. And so it's like, how do we get there? So you you brought up and they give this podcast is going to jump around because my my brain jumps around a lot. So no worries. ADHD. You uh you got a master's degree at, at Berkeley University in California yeah. in in journalism. You mentioned you were a journalist mm-hmm. for ten years. And the journalism you did, explain what you did, like the, what, what you did as, as a journalist. So I started off in, in news. So I remember being in, in high school and ha- having, you know, writing classes or English classes. And I always, again, loved movies, loved novels, like reading books, whatever. And I always loved writing. Like, uh, once, like once I started to write, I sort of like, the, the drawing kind of took a back seat and it was all writing all the time. So I was like, how do I... I love writing, but I have no clue how to make a career at this, right? And so I think I had all these teachers at the time that were telling me, hey, Larry, I think you're a really good writer. Try journalism, because journalism was a very kind of like low bar of entry. You know, you can get started pretty much right away. Because like you mentioned, I want to be a a screenwriter or a novelist. They were like, cool, but like that's almost impossible, or at least to them anyway. So I was like, all right, so I'll, I'll just... You know, like I'll walk that back a bit and be a journalist. And, so I started and, and it's hard because when when you're young and impressionable, like your teachers that you look up to, they do have an impression on you. If they yeah. say to you, "Hey, like," and they're trying, they're probably just trying to protect you. You know, they're, 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 maybe because they weren't able, maybe they had to go at it and they failed. So, hey, they would do this because it's those. It's easier, you know. Because as you have said in many articles, like acting, uh, the movie industry, Hollywood is probably the most competitive industry on the planet. In yeah. any aspect, and it's full of rejection, and they're just trying to help you in, in the high. But yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's a shame, and it? it's, it's a shame that people can like you know bestow someone's like what they can and can't do, especially when you're so young and you have you you are impressionable. Um, so you talk about the, the, the journalism and stuff. You 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 entry into that. So I started off um in sports, so there was a tiny little like newspaper um like, um in, in the town I lived in uh, in, in the Poconos and. Uh, I started writing for like I saw the editor of the sports department in line at the supermarket. I just walked up to him. I was like, my my teacher, my English teacher in high school said that I should I should write for papers, and I saw you and I recognized you because I've, I've read some of your columns and on the sports section. 
I'm a writer. Like, are there any openings? And he goes, all right, like maybe we'll do an internship. So he goes, send me some samples. So I sent him like, you know, some essays I wrote in, in high school or whatever. And he goes, all right, like, I think, you know, this is good. Come come in, you know, on Saturday, this coming Saturday, come in or whatever. And we'll, we'll kind of walk you through it. I did that for like all the rest of college. So I did that for like maybe like three years on and off. You know, and it was cool. Like at first it was like, you know, having a byline. So the byline is like, you know, by Larry Santana, like in the paper that like, you know, everyone in town would read. So I was like, that, that's really cool. But I knew that after that, um, I graduated college, I had a job, a full-time job waiting for me at the, the newspaper. And I was like, I don't want to cover high school sports for the rest of my life. I don't want to be, you know, writing about, you know, like high school basketball or even like little league softball. I, I did, I did that also. And um, I was like, I need more options, but there's not many options in this tiny little town I live in. So what can I do about that? So I was like, let me apply to grad school, but not just any grad school. It has to be like the top programs in the country. And so the top of the list was Cal Berkeley. I applied. I got in. I had never been on a, pl on a plane in my life at that point. I'd never left like New York, Jersey, Pennsylvania. I think the farthest I'd ever traveled was like Connecticut maybe. But like I'd never been outside the tri-state. And I was like, okay, well, I need to like broaden my horizons because like there's more opportunities out there. So I applied to to, to Berkeley, got in, and I was like, of what, I, of, I, of, of what credentials? Of your ability in college, your degree? Yeah. So um, I had to send them a bunch of clips of um, of like my my newspaper articles that I wrote, like you know, because like the, the grad school program was kind of built for people that were kind of already professionals, already working. So I knew that, like, I didn't have as much experience as probably some of my classmates would. So I was like, I need to, like, have great grades in college, and I need to uh, accumulate as many clips as possible to show them, hey, I do this, like, in real life, you know, like, you know, for a real newspaper. So I did that, got in, and then sight unseen, never been to California in my life, hop in a plane, I go, and the funny thing was, I get there, and I'm like, my, my mission at the time was, like, I want to be, like, the best, like, you know, newspaper journalist around and I, I went to you know write for the New York Times or some big paper and you know win a bunch of awards and be that guy and then when I got to grad school for journalism school there was a tv department and it had, there was loads of all this gear it was cameras and lights and microphones that I could use for free and it blew my mind I was like oh my god I can use this whenever I want to and they're like yeah let's you're a student like go nuts like editing bays, everything, like really like, you know, um, like professional equipment. And so I immediately was like, well, let me start shooting some stuff, kind of see what happens. And it sort of reignited, it, re it reminded me that, hey, like you love movies and you want to do this. This might be like a little spark of something that could be maybe pushed you in that direction. And so that's how it began. And I remember they like vividly, I had one, we, we would shoot these like assignments. It was like, we'd shoot these, um, like news packages. So it was like, you know, go out and do a story about some local person, you know, two to three minutes, you know, shoot it, edit it, and then we'll play it in front of the class, right? And like kind of like a screening. And so I came back, shot some stuff, came back. And I remember that my classmates were like, oh, this is awesome. It feels like this is so cool. It looks like a movie. And my professors were like, Larry, what are you doing? Like this, this is news. You can't, this is not how we do it. This is not if you want to make movies, you're in the wrong part of California. Like, Berkeley's up north. You know, L.A. is down south. They're like, you're about six hours, you know, in the wrong direction. If you want to make movies, you, you, you shouldn't be here. And I was like, oh, man, but, like, my classmates are loving it. What are you talking about? And as you're telling me that, you're smiling. I see it on your face. What are you talking about? Um, and so, I don't know. So I, I kept that with me. It was like, well, all right, maybe, 
maybe I should, I should investigate that a little bit further. Then I, I graduated and then I went on to my first big TV job. So never having been in a plane, going to California, all my classmates were like five, 10 years older than me with tons of experience I didn't have. I was the youngest guy in my class by like, by years. And then from there, I never really worked in TV before, but like newspapers were kind of like, you know, they were dying out because of the internet. And so I was like, well, how do I make a living in journalism given the current state of affairs? This was back in 2008 when I graduated. So then from there, I'm like, well, broadcast seems fun. And, you know, like TV seems more like, like there's more of a life to it than there are in print. But secretly in my back of my head, I was like, yeah, but it's, it's closer to movies. It's not movies yet, but it's a little bit closer in that direction. Let me go pursue that. And then my first big job a year after graduation was um, MSNBC in New York. So back to New York, back to the East Coast, uh, 30 Rock, like mad, I mean, famous building where they film, you know, Saturday Night Live. And like, it's right, right across the street from um, Radio City Music Hall. You know, it's like this like historic, like really famous building, massive, you know, 35, 40 story building. And um, I, I, I was a producer there for like three years. So what I did was I'd write news copy for anchors to read on the air. Um, and I produced a segment, so I would cut sound bites. I would like look for footage and, you know, kind of package it together and make it like TV friendly. But again, it felt like kind of like short films I was doing. It was like, I'm taking all the media, all the sound bites, putting it together, writing a script. And then watching the anchor read it was to me like, this is an actor performing my dialogue kind of thing, right? So I did that for years. And I remember like, again, I, I just wasn't, I wasn't happy. Like I had a very well-paying job and it was like- You mentioned that. So you mentioned that, but can you, can you be a bit more specific? How, how well-paying was this job? Working in TV, is the money good? You said like you had a good job and you kind of, what, what were we looking at? So just for comparison, right? So like all the print jobs I have been doing, so print newspapers, like traditional, I was 20, what, 22, 23 at the time, I think. And uh, I was making maybe like, if I was, if I made like 30 grand a year, that was a lot. And then, and news, um, pretty quickly, I was making double that, like within my first few months there. I was like in the 60s. And then the path, like, so it's like, I was a segment producer. So like, those are the guys that write the copy for the, for the anchors. Then there's line producer, there's there's supervising producer, then there's executive producer. But on that ladder, that climbing that corporate ladder, you can, I mean, within a few years, you can be making six figures, like, you know, like well into the six figures, like over the course of, you know, maybe like within like five or five to seven years, you're making really good money. It was there and it was laid out for me. It was like, this is the path. If you, if you want to continue on this path, this path is yours for as long as you want it, right? And so... Um, I had this really like difficult moment because I'm like, I know as far as my, my bank account is concerned, this is a good move for me. Like stay here. You're already like, proven you can do the job really well. People here really like you. They like your work. Um, you know, just ride this on out. And I just was like thinking about if I stay here for the rest of my professional life, how, am I going to be happy? Am I going to like, well, how, what's that going to feel like? What is that going to do to me? And I was like, I, um... I was, I was, I was a little bit like scared of like, you know, am, am I crazy for leaving this, this, this really like prestigious job that everyone's like, oh, you're lucky to have this job. Right. And then I think that, um, I couldn't reconcile that with like how I just felt about myself and the life that I wanted. And so everyone in my life, I was afraid to tell them what I was thinking about doing. I was thinking about leaving, just quitting and saying, I'm going to write movies and figure it out. But I didn't want to tell anyone because they would, I, I thought they were going to laugh at me. 
And then I, I met my girlfriend. Um, she was actually an intern at, at MSNBC. So that's how we met. And she shadowed me for like you know, her first couple of weeks there on the job. And it's funny because like when you go into that place, like especially with the, with the new people coming in, the new hires, you know, it's this historic building and there's like that wow factor. Like people are coming in like, oh my God, I'm at 30 Rock. This is amazing. She came in and she was like, yeah, whatever. It's just a newsroom. Like, she, like that did not phase her at all. And so like we started talking and started becoming like friendly. And, um, you know, eventually we started a date and like I told her like, hey, I think I'm thinking about leaving this place. And she's like, oh my God, good. Like leave. That, that, that place is not for you. Like you're so, you're, you're, you have so much more to offer than that place will allow you to offer. And so I was like, are you sure? And like, and because everyone else, I was, I was terrified of telling them, but I was like, I told her and then she was like, yeah, like that's, that's the move. And so that kind of gave me like the little boost of confidence that just enough that I needed to like go over that, that hump. And then I was like, all right, I started plotting and scheming. And then I was like, all right, like, okay, we go to LA, we'll do this. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll empty out my bank account. We'll figure out like where we're going to live and da da da. And then I remember I turned in my letter of resignation. So like I, I typed up a formal letter and everyone was like, wait, you're quitting? Like, what, what are you doing? At the time, I was working on three shows at the same time. And like that no one else at the network was doing that. It was just, I, I was doing like the only guy, cause like they, they just, they liked me. They were like, oh, Larry can help out on this show and this show and, and come in for the Saturday shows too. And so I had three different teams that were like, you know, fans of mine. And they were like, why, where are you going? Like, why would you do that? And I was like, I think I'm going to write movies. And they were like, you're going to do what? I was like, I'm going to write movies in LA. And they were like, do you know anyone? Do you have an agent? I was like, I don't know anybody, but I'm going to figure it out. And so I handed him my letter. And then I remember the HR woman, she was like, okay. At the time I was like 28, I think. And she's like, all right, well, if you're going to do it, I guess now is the time. You're young. You don't have a mortgage. You don't have any kids. Like, go ahead and, you know, best of luck to you. And then a week to the day from when I handed in that letter, I find out Natalie, my girlfriend, now wife, was pregnant. And so I was like, oh, my God, I just quit this job. And I'm having to get a baby on the way. Like, oh, as I was freaking out. And then but by this time, I had told my family that I was, I was quitting already. And then when they found out that, that she was pregnant, they're like, you can't, you can't go to LA now. You have to stay. Like you have, you have that, that kid to worry about. And again, Natalie was the only one. She's like, no, no, we made a play. Like the trains already left the station. Like we are going to go to LA. Like we'll do it. Too. We'll figure it out together. And we went and it was, it was scary, but <laughs> we, we figured it out. My son was born in, so in Santa me, Monica. So let me just jump in. You said a lot there and there's loads of points I want to touch upon, but I'm going to touch upon the last point. Then we're going to talk about the LA years and then, then the West. Firstly, Natty sounds wonderful. Natty sounds like a wonderful human. They always say, but every great man is a great woman. She sounds like a wonderful, inspirational lady herself. So thank you, Natalie, because I don't mean Larry if she doesn't give you, you know, encourage you to take this massive leap of faith. Question for you. You found out a week later um, that Natty was pregnant. Let's say you, you found out the day before you can hand the resignation letter in, do you still hand in the letter? Well, I think I, I definitely would have would have thought twice about it. But again, she would have been like, "No, we're doing this." I like I because I think I convinced her too. Like, and she was also looking for a change, and it was like, I think it'd be exciting to go on this adventure with you. And she's like, "And you know, we'd only been dating for like two years at the time, so it was still a pretty new relationship. Like, kind of learning, you know, figuring each other out." 
And the fact that she trusted me to say, all right, I believe in you enough and I trust you enough that I'm going to take this massive leap of faith with you. I think it spoke volumes to like who she is. And so I was like, all right, well, she believes in it. And so like, again, it gave me just, just enough of a boost of confidence to say, hey, I think, I think we can figure this out. Get to LA, Tinseltown. Is it everything you expected, hoped, wanted, dreamt of? Well, I mean, not a fr- <laughs> No, I mean, not at first. No, it, it was it was very tough at because first. Because everyone I mean, goes to LA to become an actor, to yeah. become a movie star, to work in Hollywood. Everyone, it's a town as old as time. Right? Everyone does it. And funny you say that, right? So when I, going back a little bit, when I was hired from boxing, I sat with my team, my boxing team, and we sat in the office, and I was like, right, now what's next? I was 30 years old. I was in the best physical shape of my life, or being basically blind in my left eye. And I was like, oh, now what do I do? And I sat on my team, my agent, Dean, who I respect and admire a lot. And, you know, we're very close. I said, oh, I think I'm going to be an actor. And he went, mate, the... <laughs> that's exactly what he said. He said, mate, he said, the world does not need another actor. And I went, but it's me, but it's me. And I thought he was going to, I thought he'd respond, I thought he'd be like, oh, yeah, if anybody can do it, you can do it. And then the kind of, uh, ultimately, like, there's something I've always, long, as you know, long, long to do. Um, but I was young and I was healthy and I, I had this, I'd, I'd created this fit, again, minus my arm, I had this really fit, healthy body and I still had, hadn't, hadn't scratched the itch of, of athleticism, hence I went down the professional wrestler route, which is like basically the bridge between boxing and acting is, is wrestling, it's just half sport, half acting, right? So for me, it's, it's amazing. So I, I'm, I'm glad I went down this route anyway, uh, like a little, little bridge maybe for the next career thereafter. But um yeah, man. Like you had the, you had the, you had the, the, the bottle, the, you know, the balls, whatever, and it's to just go and do it, and you made that leap, and you did what a lot of people do, go to LA. How was it? I don't know anyone, and I've got my pregnant girlfriend with me. She's like four months pregnant. I mean, she started, she's really starting to show, and I'm the whole time I'm just I'm stressing out of my mind, like how am I gonna, how am I gonna make make this work? How am I gonna support? You know, like. My my girlfriend and my you know soon to be son who was going to be born any minute now like there was a ticking clock yeah I felt like I was in a movie like I'm trying to defuse a bomb before it blows up you know like so um we I remember staying like you know we I had all my savings and like we we had enough money to last you know maybe a a couple of months out there before before it's I finally not a long worked. time is it it's not a long not time at all. like no. really you up, goes, up against it. And LA, yeah, brother, as we know, it. LA's expensive, man. I was there in November. LA's expensive. I mean, America's so expensive, expensive, but LA's expensive. Yeah. And so we get over there, and I remember just to save money, like we were staying in some really crappy hotels, and like we had, we must have had, I think, every other meal must have been like Denny's. It was like the the, the, the diner, like cheap diner, like crappy food, and you know, like just because it was cheap, and I'm like, I can't keep feeding, you know, like. Natalie and the baby, Denny's, like this greasy, awful diner food. I got to figure it out. So um, luckily, we found an apartment. I had to lie in the application about a job that I didn't have. I was like, oh, yeah, I have a job. Yeah, it's, don't, don't worry. And so I paid, you know, like the, the deposit and everything. And like after I handed him the check to, for the first month's rent and the deposit, I had maybe like, I don't know, 500 bucks left in the bank. So I was like, I had enough for groceries and like not much not else. Going far, and you, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, you... Basically emptied your bank account and you took your 401k, which in the UK is is our pension, took an early pension, basically released to 
to pay for your 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 relocation to and also people who you know from from east coast to west coast in America so people will understand how big of a jump is because UK is really small like we can be in Scotland in seven hours six hours right so like right. in a different country if we drove to across France in seven hours we were in Poland we've gone through like four countries how big <laughs> America is recently in December I flew back from London to New York and it was seven hours and fifteen minutes to fly from New York from London to New York. I had a five-hour wait in JFK, and I flew from New York to San Francisco. It took six hours and forty-five minutes. It took it took thirty minutes longer to fly from London to New York than I did New York to to California. That's how large America is as 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 a country. Um, so yeah, it's very much a relocation. You know, other side of the country, three-hour time difference from your family, away from your parents. Um, big step, mate. Big, but you you and it got tough, right? You but you ground it out. So luckily, I was just applying for whatever job, you know, I, I, at first I was doing like a telemarketing job for like five minutes just to get some income coming in. And luckily, I reached out to um, an old producer friend of mine that I met in the Bay Area, um, like that I worked with like briefly, like before the embassy job in New York, I worked like for like maybe like four months for this tiny little production company um, in the Bay Area um, called Indigo Films. And a producer there who I who I loved and like a really great guy, this guy uh, Chris Chris Lavelle. Um, I read that they were opening up an office in L.A., and so on a on a whim, I I emailed him, and I hadn't spoken to Chris for maybe like three three years at that point, maybe a little bit longer. And he emailed me back right away. I'm like, hey, I'm in L.A. I read that you guys are opening up a new office down here. Um, I'm looking for work. Do you have anything? And within 24 hours. He was like, yeah, I, perfect. Oh, great timing. We're actually starting this new like TV show, and uh, you can be a researcher on it. How does a uh, thousand bucks a week sound? And I was like, oh my god, like like saved. I mean, literally saved like my life because I was like, I, I had no other money, and the telemarketing gig was like eight dollars an hour. So he's like, here's a thousand bucks a week to get started. And I was like, oh my god. So I'm like forever in in that guy that man's debt because like he saved. I mean, also made it possible for us to stay in California and for my wife to like. You know, we we had, we had this beautiful uh, UCLA Santa Monica, this beautiful hospital, like amazing care, and like it was just. If he had not answered that email and given me that job, I don't know what would happen. So you know, that was the beginning of like, okay, like we're here, and now what's going to be the next step? So what was the next step? Because I know you struggled. I know like emotionally you struggled when you're in A, weren't you? You 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 won. You weren't writing movies. You were working full time doing something you didn't really want to do. Explain what you did. Explain. The, 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 the true crime stuff you did. So the company I worked for, um, it was they, they produced a lot of um, like documentary television. So a lot of like true crime stuff for Investigation Discovery, which is um, an offshoot of Discovery Channel. And they sort of primarily focus on like true crime stories. So like, you know, documentary shows where, for instance, like, you know, you would interview a prisoner and then he would tell his life story. And then using a crew and actors, you would shoot what's called a reenactment. So, like, he's describing the crime that he committed, and then you would get a crew and film the thing, and then, like, you know, you cross-cut between the real interview and, like, the uh, the, the reenactment. So I did that, um, and, you know, the money, pay, it, it paid well, but, like, I was doing that for, like, four years when I was in L.A., um, and, you know, writing screenplays on the side. Every free moment I had when, when I wasn't, you know, raising my, my new son was trying to um, just, like, build up a body of work and sort of hone my craft because I knew that, like, I need to prove that I'm I'm in this for the long haul. I'm, I'm not some kind of fly-by-night type of guy that, I, you know, I'm committed to the craft of screenwriting. 
I had to build up you know, a stack of scripts to show like that I'm getting better and better. I'm like, you know, just teaching myself how to do it. But in order to do that um, and, and to stay in LA and pay the bills, I spent four years interviewing, you know, bank robbers and rapists and, you know, murderers and you name it. And, you know, like just some really horrific crimes that I, I, they, they told me about firsthand. And the type of stories that like you walk away from it and like it just does something to you on an emotional level. Like, you know, I, I love horror movies as a genre, but like it pales in comparison to like the true horror of like some of those stories that, that, that I heard. And so like when it comes to fictional horror, like sign me up. Well, that's great. I love that. But like the actual like real world stuff, um, they, there's a real sort of like a toll it takes on you when you engage with it for as long as I did. And like I think that um, after a while, I was like, this is not, um, I, I can't do this like for much longer. So that was a real struggle. Mate, you you, you moved back to, to, to PA by Pennsylvania? Yeah, so um, we're in LA for about five years. And I was also, the one thing I should also mention too was like because of the, the TV jobs, I was traveling all the time. I was like living out of suitcases and a lot. Like I'd be on the road for weeks at a time, you know, away from from Natalie and the baby, and like you know, just um, it, it didn't seem worth it to me. I was like, I'm I'm working so hard just to be able to live in this place, but I'm not with the people that I love, and I'm not doing the work that I love. So how do I fix that? So after a long talk, and you know, we love California, but we like, well, it just makes more sense for us to move back east, much cheaper to live there. And I'll have much more time. I don't have to work quite so hard to pay the bills. And I can um, I can write the stuff that I want to write. And uh, I can figure it out that way. So that's what we did. You said, uh, I read in an article, you said that uh, moving back, moving back with your parents and, and lived in the basement with your, with your wife and your, and your son. At first, yeah. Like, the, the to, before we got on our feet again. Because that, that was, yeah. To the big ego then. Not your ego. You struggled oh, yeah. emotionally. Mass, I mean, massive ego then. I mean, I felt like an absolute, like, failure. I mean, I was like, oh, my God. Like, I was out there. And again, you know, having all these jobs, it was similar to NBC. NBC, I had like, you know, good money, steady, steady income. I was doing well. And then I left that. And then I was doing the true crime stuff. And that was more up and down because it was a freelance thing. It was like, you know, I like I I, I had work as long as the shows continued to to, to run. But even so, um, it just took a really heavy kind of like emotional toll on me. And I was like, this is not, this is just not, not right either. So we left, and then we're back, you know, we're on the East Coast again. And my parents, again, God bless them. Like, I, I feel so lucky <laughs> to have the parents that I have because they were like, well, all right, listen, like, don't worry about it. Come back in. We'll help you out. And then when you're back on your feet, then, um, you know, you can go on your way with, with our blessing. And so I, we did that for a little while. And um, in coming back, I, I had a lot more time than I had before. And so I wrote a bunch of new material and one of one of which became a script that um, got to the hands of Universal, and then they hired me to write two other movies, and then like so that kind of set me off on a whole other path that I'm on now. But that not that would not have been possible had not had it not been for that move back east. Moving out west to LA, you needed that that in your life to grow. Yeah. You needed that in your life to grow into and, and to figure out what you didn't want again. Then you it's just it's just everything's really fast now. I think we. We, as a society, we spend time in places we don't really want to be and not wanting to be there. But ultimately, we often need these experiences to grow so we know where we want to go. Right. And I think that that's really fascinating. And also, having a strength to having a strength for character to, to leave New York, uh, a well-paying job where your, your, your life is potentially like mapped out for you, to go and do the scary thing in L.A., 
and I mean, just taking that leap of faith is amazing. Then having the strength for cancer to go, no, no, this isn't what I want to do. I'm living in LA in a nice apartment and everything, but like, I'm not happy. Been going back, like taking that. Sometimes you've got to step back to your forwards, haven't you? And that sounds like yeah. something definitely that, 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 that you did. Can we talk about Five O'Clock Shadows? Yes, yes. So this is the movie that um, that we worked on together. So we worked on together. I just, we worked on, you worked on, you invited me to be part of your amazing casting. They are a wonderful cast. Some of the guys, the, the girls and guys who worked on that are just stellar, stellar, stellar. So um, talk about how we met. So um, I was looking, so I wrote this crazy character. I mean, I, I won't give away too much uh, plot details wise, but like I wrote this, T Tommy Knuckles is his name. He's a, he's a, he's a boxer. So um, I'm, I'm casting people for, because I, I was doing like pretty much a proof of concept. So for those who don't know, a proof of concept is essentially what you show to people to, uh, to get, you know, a financing for a project. So you say, all right, here's a script. I want to show you what it might look and feel like to give you a better sense of what you might be paying for. So it could be a trailer. It could be storyboards. It could be, you know, like there's, there's many ways to do it. I was going to do it doing a trailer and doing this crazy table read video. So I recorded a table read over Zoom with Mr. Gogo here and the rest of the cast. Um, and like kind of just like reading the whole script from top to bottom, acting it out, and then like kind of like filling it, bringing it to life with like animation and it sound effects so and music. It's so good. It's so good. Ah, it's going to get done. It's going to get done. It's going to get done. 100%. It's gonna, it has to get has done. Get it's done. going to. Um, and so I was, I was trying to like, you know, I was trying to audition actors and like, for each each of the there's five main uh, main characters, and so I was trying to like audition for all of them, and um, I was looking for a guy to play Tywin Knuckles was a very particular, very specific role that not anyone can do. Like you know, it's very specific, and I was I was trying to find people and auditioning some people, and they just were not. It just it didn't come to life. It didn't leap off the page the way it had to, and so I started leaning on some of my actor friends, and so. Um, Isadora Leiva, who is an actress I worked with um, on Death of a Fool, this film that I, I produced with a buddy of mine in Miami. She was an actor on that and um, just talking about, hey, do you know any, you know, actors that like, you know, British, big, like tough looking guys who like might be able to fill the role? She goes, actually, I know the perfect guy. And his name was Anthony Gogo. And she's like, I'll put you guys in touch. I was like, okay. And then you and I met and then I had you send me an audition tape. And from the minute, like, I mean, like, from, like, minute one, I was, like, watching you, like, you know, perform this monologue. I'm like, that's it. Like, that's, th there's some people where you don't have to teach them how to act. You just put a camera in front of them and, like, uh, let them do the rest. And you, I think you were very much that type of guy. So just watching your audition tape and finding out after the fact that you hadn't done any real acting besides, like, wrestling, um, I was really, I was even more impressed. I'm like, oh, so, you like, you're still raw. Like, you're still learning. Imagine how good you can be, like, with some more experience. So I was like, all right, like, you have the intangible, like, the the the, the sort of it factor, like, the thing that cannot be taught. Like, you have that in spades. So I was like, all right, well, he's my, he's my Tommy Knuckles. So we started working together, and, like, that's kind of how we, how it kicked off. Man, that's, that's so cool. Thank you so much for the kind words. Really appreciate that. I thought that character was stellar. Um, I read the script. I was like, oh, I need to pay this guy. I need to pay this guy. I remember, we had a, you sent me over the thing. I found an acting studio in, in Atlanta, where I am, and done a, done auditions. And oftentimes, you really, when you do an audition, it's like you don't want to do as an actor. When you get an audition, you get a script, you read it, and most people are going to do it a certain way. Because ultimately, as an actor, you get a script, you get the words. For those that don't know, and like 
most people are going to do it a certain way. And then if we're, if we're, if we're, if if a Larry, if we're a casting director, they get a hundred scripts and ninety seven are the same, but three are different. They're going to be more drawn to the different one, aren't they? It's like, well, that's a bit different. I didn't see it that way. And oftentimes, what the acting coaches tell us in the in class, oftentimes the casting directors aren't too sure what they want. And to me, how true this is, it's obviously it's, it's a personal. So, like, just give them something that they, 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 they might think, oh, I like that even more than what was in my head. So, I remember Larry said to me when he said, be big with it. I mean, the words were big. And also, the, the, the age old thing, if someone says, if someone says to you, um, if the words are, I'm going to fucking kill you, you piece of shit. Like, in an argument, you might be, you might be like, well, I'm going to fucking kill you, you piece of shit, and shout it. But it's almost more sinister saying, more sinister saying, I'm going to fucking kill you, you piece of shit. Doing the quiet yeah. and low. Oh, it has, it has a different yeah. thing to it. But you said to me, so I looked at the script, and I'm thinking, I want to go I want to go different and do it, like, do it a bit different. Then you said to me, nah, mate, be big with it. Be, be liberal with it. I'm like, mate, I'll be liberal. And I remember I did, I did a few different takes, and you were like, yeah, you're like, this, this is cool. So, man, that was just, that was great. And I really get, and then, so when you, you, you cast me in the role, and I thought, bloody, I've got to learn how to wax now. <laughs> I'm not going to be in a movie. They've been to an acting class in my life, so I went to an acting class, and uh, yeah, I still go there, I met Actually, a previous uh, guest on the podcast, Scott Oakley, my acting coach, brilliant guy, uh, an acting coach in London as well. Richard, who's an amazing guy as well. And um, mate, you, you—it's something I've always wanted to do, but nothing, like nothing. I was wasting that kind of little, little smack on the butt to go and do it. And you very much gave me that smack on the butt to go and do. It. And I want to thank you for that because it's generally one of my my, my favorite things I get to do now is acting. And you know, whether I become a massive star or not, I just really enjoy doing it. I enjoy. I enjoy telling stories, but I enjoy being the, you know, being the instrument of the story, getting out to the world. And I think it's fascinating. Um, mate, should we- And you're great at it too, so so continue. Please continue. Thank you, sir. Actually, funny little story. <clears throat> so I mentioned Scott. I didn't know Scott. I just called up the acting, the closest acting studio to me, or the highest rated one in Atlanta, in Buckhead. And I called up, and got called Scott Answers. Nicest guy in the world. But I didn't know this at the time. It sounds nice on the phone, but still, I don't, you don't know what someone's like over, over the phone. Then we spoke, and you said to me, you went, there's a, in, there's a, there's a beginner, intermediate, and in advanced class in, uh, in my acting school. Then you, you said to me, oh yeah, go to the advanced class. And I was like, I've never been to acting. I can't go to the advanced class. I've never been to acting. You started to just push yourself. I went, all right. So, so I called Scott. He must have thought, what a dickhead. I called Scott, all bold as brass. Oh, Scott. I went down to my own. Go, 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 go. Olympic box off. I'll drop in the Olympic boxing. I've been on TV and stuff. I'm now a wrestler. Been on TV. So, he said, have you acted before? I went, wow, mate. Every day's an act, isn't it? And I give, give him one of those really shit generic responses. Like, I know what I'm talking about. Every day they said, but have you acted before? I went, well, not really. No, not really. No, 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 potato, potato, not really, but no, kind of. He went, he said, well, there's beginner class on Monday. And I went, well, can I come to the advanced class on, on, on Wednesday? He said, we haven't acted before. I said, but, but I said, but I'm good. I went, oh, I sound like an absolute idiot. I said, but I said, but I'm good. Because <laughs> you told me I was good. And he went, he said, um, he said, okay, he said, do you know how to cheat? And I thought... It's a trick question. Is it like I didn't ask? There's a so I said, so do you know how to cheat? I said, no, no, I'm not going to cheat. I'm going to come in. I'm going to, I'm going to try really hard. Now, obviously, everyone, any actor in here, cheating, <laughs> cheating means open your body up so the audience can see you and the person. 
So you're not standing off your side on so the camera can't see you or the person. And that just gave away. Well, I had no idea how to act. He said, mate, he said, he said, come to the beginner class on Monday, then we'll see where we go. I did one beginner class, he moved me to intermediate class straight away. Um, and I'm still there, but I enjoyed that class more than advanced anyway, so I don't care. But um, so yeah, man. So thank you so much. I got from from our interaction, I got to meet some really cool people that I really uh, respect and admire and, and look up to. And my life is way rich now because of meeting yourself and the people that I've met, you know, because of you. So I really appreciate that. So like, you're your first screenplay at uh, 28 years old, uh, a young man, but not a youngster. You know, lived a fair bit of life. Why did I, why why did you wait so long? I think I was just working up sort of the 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 confidence to even try. I think for years and years, you know, especially coming from where I come from, like no one has any industry experience at all. No one like I just didn't know how to make it possible. It seemed like you know I had a better chance of becoming an astronaut than becoming a filmmaker or a screenwriter. So it just never seemed like possible, and so and in a real tangible way. So I think that journalism was sort of my way to scratch that storytelling itch. Um, that was accessible to me at the time. Now, you know, the part of me does does regret that I started so late, but also I think because of my experiences in the 10 years like as a journalist and then doing the investigative reporting stuff and that experience, I think it adds an element to my writing that most people don't have. I think that's what sets me apart from the pack. And so all that stuff, you know, I don't think any of that time was wasted. I think it was just like sort of like molding me into the, into the, 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 the person that I, I meant to become. Um, but I will say for anyone listening who's on the fence about it, I think if you are like burning up to do this thing, whatever it may be, it was creative or whatever it may be, um, you have to silence the voices of doubt and just go for it. Because if you don't, then you play it safe, you will ultimately regret it, I think, forever. And so it's about finding a way that's actionable and that like makes you feel whole. And like, you know, it, it's incredibly challenging. It's, it's not easy. It's certainly not for the faint of heart. I mean, you know, God knows I've struggled and like I, we, we, we've covered those struggles, but I think that um, for anyone who's, you know, the kind of debating or like letting other people's voices enter their mind um, and those voices are louder than your own, I think that's a, that's a sign that you have to sort of like filter that stuff out because do you want to live your life based upon, you know, your ideals and your principles or do you want to do it to, satisf to, to satisfy someone else's? And so I, I think that's the biggest uh, takeaway for, for me. So go out, go ahead and do it. Go out and do it. And I think people often wait for the right time, for the right time. Yeah. The fact is, there's never going to be a right time. There's never really a right time. There's never, right, there's never a right time to have a child. There's always another bill coming. There's always this, that, the other. And the child analogy is a great one because there's always something. It's the right time when you make it the right time. And whether it's a child or becoming a screenwriter or changing job or doing something, like there's never going to be a right time. You've got to make it happen. It's the right time when you say and you make you, you plant a seed and you commit to it and follow through. And yes, it's scary. Yes, it's daunting. Yes, you're going to doubt yourself, but you just got to do it anyway. You know, and I, I, I'm i so glad you got here where you are. I think you're right. I think your story is because you lived life, because you went through struggle and setback in those in-between years where you were kind of unsure what to do. That adds to your your writing. So it's, it's experience. It's, it's life experience, isn't it? You know, it's life experience. You know, you're... Way more life experience at 28 than you have at 21 because you've lived seven more years over a very pivotal seven-year period. So if you are waiting at home, wherever, waiting to take that leap of faith, wherever it, wherever it may be, um, 
I, I again urge you of the sense to be take the leap of faith, wherever it may be. You know, what's the worst that's going to happen? You're going to be back where you were anyway, but at least you tried. At least you had a go. And that's the thing. I mean, like, you know, life isn't a race, right? As long as we get there in the end, it doesn't really matter. The journey, and there's 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 certain elements of beauty in the journey, in the struggle. You know, the, the, the hard times often... When you look back, when you're out of it, when you're in it, of course, doesn't seem beautiful when you're in it because you're in it and it's, it's a bit shit. But when you look back in years to come, you can see such beauty in those hard years. You can gain some strength. And when I, when I had my eye, actually, I had my eyes, my eye was bad. Before I had my eye in 2016, retired from boxing in 2019, was it really in a hole until 2021, really? So for five years, I was in a hole. And when I was in that, I wouldn't have wished it upon anybody. I, I hated it. My life was miserable. I was really struggling. Looking, and don't get me wrong, I don't want to go back there, but looking back now, there's some beautiful parts in there, in that in that struggle. I learned a lot about myself in there, which I'm, I wouldn't have learned if my life was all, all, all rosy and, and, and fantastic. So I'm really, I'm really pleased about that, mate. I'm glad, we've, I'm glad we've chatted today for a few reasons. Um, one, because I don't doubt that one day you're going to blow up massive and be massive big time, and you're going to be like, Anthony Agogo, who's that? podcast get some back up now nah, mate far too busy i'm going around spielberg's house for breakfast so um so i think i'm glad we got you now when you've got a time for me and secondly on that point i mean a lot of and we discussed this actually before we, we we spoke a lot of screenwriters or not even screenwriters let's just talk holistically a lot of people have their stories told once they've climbed their mount olympus boxers footballers and um, like screenwriters whoever it is once you've done a great thing you come and you talk about your great thing and all the things you did. And oftentimes, right, when you do that, because this time has gone by since you achieved that great thing or did that great thing, um, you, you kind of tell it differently because you remember it differently. And that's natural. Over time, time goes by, you remember things differently. Maybe those curtains weren't blue. They were, maybe they were green. You know, Maybe it wasn't a Wednesday. Maybe it was a Friday. You just tell things differently, like in, intentionally or unintentionally. And the great thing is, I mean, when you're when you're in the midst of it, you're very much still in the trenches, quote unquote. I don't need, I don't mean to you know disparage soldiers that fight in trenches, obviously. But when you're in it, it's it's even more beautiful because we're we're in it now. You're we're living it. You are two weeks away from being told by Universal that like five o'clock, it's not get, it's not happening. Well, not now with us anyway, you know. So very much in it still. So I'm glad to chat. And maybe do you want to chat about that? Chat some of your experiences like now rather than. You know, five years time, you make the movie, you win a you win a ton of awards. You cast you cast you cast Michael B. Jordan instead of me. You bastard! So, no. <laughs> <laughs> never, never, no, no. I mean, look, I mean, this will be this will be interesting to look back on. You know, like when it, like when the movie finally gets made and come back and refer back to this. But I think, you know, like you're right. I think usually you hear stories that happen. You know, once they've crossed the finish line, and I think I'm still very much in the race, so very much in the trenches. Still trying to figure it out, you know, like dealing with these setbacks, and I think that that is the the life of um, of a filmmaker. I mean, of any you know creative person, I, I think that you're trying to always like climb up that that mountain. You're pushing a boulder up a hill every day, inch by inch by inch. And like you know, it's not sexy to, to see the guy struggling in the middle. It's sexy to see oh, once he's already won and and has all the all the accolades. But I think that this is the the, the sort of proving ground that like I think. You know, you you get through the uh, the struggles. You you sort of earn your stripes, so to speak. You know, like you uh, you 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 build tough skin to be able to endure whatever comes after. And I think that like that part of the process is, I think, pivotal for anyone. I mean, you have to really 
kind of put yourself through the fire um, and like, and sort of prove, but before it, it, you prove anybody else wrong, you got to prove yourself right. You got to say, hey, like, I believe in this thing. I'm going to do this because I have to see it through, whatever comes of it, good, bad, or otherwise. But, you you know, as long as you can say, like, I've done everything that I can do, I think you can sort of, you know, like, be be satisfied at some level with that. But I think that, um, yeah, just to be clear to the the audience, like, I'm still very much in in that in that phase right now. So when I come out of it, we can talk about it after the fact and compare, you know, then to 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 now or uh, you know what have you. But I think, um, yeah, this is not this is not something that that's like, oh, this is uh, it's it's so bad, it's painful. Like it's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be painful. Like, this is part of this is not um, a bug. This is a feature of, of of the of the whole process. And so I think that when you you have to just embrace it, embrace the suck embrace the the hardship because like it's going to come and the reason why it's going to come is because the end thing that you're chasing is so worthwhile that of course it would be hard but how, how how wouldn't it be hard so you know you got to just buck up and and do it and that's where i'm at uh you know day by day figuring out making my way and uh we'll, we'll get to that mountaintop eventually but like this this moment here i want to be careful to not take it for granted because ultimately this is what makes like we said before, this is what makes the juice worth a squeeze. Oh man, it's called goosebumps in that last, that last sentence. And that brings us back to the beginning. I'm really annoyed. I want to ask one more question. And I'm annoyed because that was the perfect end. <laughs> but I'm going to ask you anyway. You mentioned it briefly earlier. Um, and I want to just jump on that for maybe 60 seconds. Rejection. You get a lot of no's. Constantly getting no's. Getting a yes in, in Hollywood, in acting, in, in, in the film industry. It's the weird bit. It's the odd bit. It's the, it's the anomaly. Getting a yes. What do you mean yes? Like, is, is it not a no? It's normally a no. How do you bounce back from all those no's, no's, no's when you work so hard? How do you bounce back? Well, I think for me, I mean, it comes down to like the people that, who who are the people telling me no, right? Like do, they don't have the context that I have. They don't have like, they've got, by and large, like, you know, like they've got sort of corporate directives. Like, you know, like, hey, we want to just, keep our job and keep the machine going and like you know like they're you know like like we mentioned before a bit about like the industry as a whole being very risk averse and so they're coming at it from a very like corporate standpoint i'm the creative i'm coming from an artistic standpoint like you may not you know it may not fit your corporate you know agenda your mandate but like i know what dope is like i i i know how i feel about it like you have to trust yourself as an artist too like it's because these guys are saying no they're not how do I put it? Like, I think that there is, there is, um, a conversation that I had with someone. Um, I won't, I won't mention who, but like, you know, it was kind of a back and forth and they mentioned like, they use the word visionary and like, Oh, like you're, you know, you're, you're a visionary. Like you, 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 you can do all these things. And like, it's, it's, it's incredible. But I'm like, but the thing that no one talks about, about being a visionary is like, and I, I'm not calling myself that. I'm just saying like this conversation that, that someone had with me, um, the thing with like being a visionary is like it by definition, it means seeing things that no one else can see. Right. And so when people say, oh yeah, we love your crazy ideas or whatever, but like they can't see it because they're not built to see it. Like they, they can, they're not equipped to see it. And so you're always going to be shouting into a, a hurricane, uh, in some respects, because you're dealing with people that are not the most creative people. And so when they tell you, no, just remember who they are and who you are, you know, like. You are the one that makes makes things like without without people like me, 
there is no movie business. There is no industry. There's no, there's nothing to to sell, to produce. There's, there's nothing. So I think that you have to really sort of like as an artist, um, really be courageous in your your idea, your point of view. And like people are going to tell you that you're crazy, but of course they are because they don't. They're not inside your head. They can't see the way that you see it. And so I think that you just have to like. It's very easy to get your heart broken in this business if you just like, if you take cues from everyone else. And I think that you have to just say, well, you know, just because we did, we did like you think differently doesn't mean that I'm wrong per se. It just means that we think differently, and that's okay too. I I I believe in my ideas on myself so strongly that like eventually they'll come around or they won't. But like I'm gonna make my thing because like I'm I can't not do it. It's this compulsion that I, like I I can't. It would make it would make my life lesser if I didn't do these things. I've loved the chat today, Larry. I wish you all the very best in everything you do moving forwards. I urge you to keep me in, in mind when you find new characters. Uh, well, where can uh, the people follow you and find you and watch your stuff? Um, I'm on Instagram, uh, LV Santana uh, three two six. That's my handle. Um, that. That's pretty much it for the socials. I don't really engage with social media too much. But, uh, yeah, if you want to drop me a line on there, like I'm happy to, to chat with uh, fellow creatives. Mate, thank you so much. You are a, a top, top, top guy. So passionate about what you do. Such a nice person. And I want every nice person on the planet to get everything that they want to get. And guy, I said at the very beginning, and I really mean that you're a dreamer. And everything we see around us everything we see i'm looking at a teleprompter right there some doing some work later on it and somebody once dreamt that and now it's in existence like everything we see was once a dream so keep dreaming and the hard work plus the dreams make things become a reality and like you mentioned it changes the world mate thank you so much for coming on today yeah thank you this was so much fun man i appreciate it this was a, this was a blast Personally, I love Larry. I think he's an absolutely wonderful person, so unbelievably talented. And I urge you to, to, to follow him and to check out his work. He really is, he's a star waiting to become a superstar. Well done, Larry, mate. I really enjoyed your, your conversation with me and I really enjoyed our time on the podcast. And for me, the takeaway, I mean, there's many takeaways in that podcast, but for me, I meant it when I said it. Larry's a dreamer, okay? And I mean that in the nicest possible way. Everything we see on this planet was once a dream. Somebody dreamt it and through hard work and belief, it, it came to fruition. Like Larry said, dreamers, they, they change the world. And he very much is that. And for me, I urge you this, this next coming week to, to channel your inner Larry. Go back to being a dreamer. Before, however, the knocks of life kind of like iron out those dreams. Go back to being a kid. Go back to dreaming and, and, and chasing those dreams with work ethic, with desire and with belief. And just see what you can get to. Guys, this week, this month, this year, you may get knocked down. Life might punch you right on the, on the jaw and knock you down. If that happens, then remember, there's only one option, and that's always to get back up. Stay in the fight until now and next week. And don't forget, I will see you next week. Take care, guys. <laughs>